Hello and welcome to episode three of That Federer podcast, where um, my good friend Lisa Gershon and I review weird and wonderful and classic Roger Federer matches. Lisa, thank you for joining me again. Jack, it's absolutely great to be here. Lovely and a great choice of match, I think. I think you chose this one. I did. What, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to go back in time, but not quite as far back, I think, as our other podcasts. We're going back to 2007, Federer Lopez, fourth round, US Open. Um, yeah, fourth round, US Open. It was a good match, wasn't it? It was, it was extraordinary. Let's go back and just re- recap. Federer was number one in the world. Um, he was, I think, age 26, a young, younger version. And Lopez was ranked 60th in the world, age 25. So that's the setting. 2007, the second half of 2007, Lisa, is a tricky time for looking on reflection. You know that it's from a song, I think, you know, it's later than you think. And it was later than we thought. Um, if you consider, you know, Federer wins, what, 12 of his 20 major titles in basically a four year period. Um, and this is the last slam he wins. You know, we, we talk at length to a fault about peak Federer, capital P, capital F. And this is his, his last appearance at the Grand Slam. It is. And I think we need to be reminded that, you know, he made all four majors, though. Let's, let's just talk about he made four majors in 2007, winning three of them. And we all know the one he didn't win. Um, and that in itself is worthy of, I think, just mentioning, given uh, where we are now. In that, 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 it's fair. And he, he reaches um, three of the finals in 2009, uh, eight rather, 2009, he reaches um, all four. Uh, 2010, he wins the Australian Open. So, I mean, it's never been about some bloke who falls off a cliff results-wise. It's always been, for me at least, and I think to an extent for you, that the magic is just not quite there as it used to be. And and that, to me, it was never... It was always linked to the success, obviously, but it was never purely about um, wins and losses. Yeah, because um, again, yeah, it's, you know, again, you know, in 2007, we know he makes five Masters Series finals and he wins two of them. I think it's Hamburg and Cincinnati um, mm. and one more. But again, it's not the wins. And why have we chosen this match? For, why have we chosen this match? It's just a, it's just a damn, a damn good match. Um, it's funny you, you mentioned his, his Master Series um, record that year. It's actually just, just before we get on to the match itself, it was a relatively for that period in time, bumpy year. Um, there is sort of <laughs> the great Kanyas moment slash moments of um, spring 2007, which, which bothers me for a couple of reasons. One, because it was horrible to watch him lose. And two, I really love the outfit he wore in Indian Wells against Kanyas, but because he lost the match, he never wore it again. And yeah, I are think you're going to remind me of the, the outfit. Jack? Oh, I, I couldn't describe it. It's okay, like mostly white with sort of blue um, horizontal lines. It's just a really nice, it's sort of beyond the sportswear type he wore in 0506, but not quite the fuddy duddy Federer 0809. It was, and, and, and he lost the match and never wait. wore it I think, again. I think, I think we have to wait and talk about 
match so I can talk about his attire <laughs> in the 2007. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to sort of let the record say, I mean, the, the bloke lost to Filippo Volandri that year. I have a better second serve than Filippo Volandri. Um, so it, it was an extraordinary Grand Slam record, but it just wasn't quite the... I also feel not that it was a time in his life where he didn't think he had to win every Master Series event. I mean, obviously, Nadal was better. Djokovic was there. Um, but at the same time, you get the feeling that he didn't need to prove anything at a Master Series event in order to sort of know he was ready for a Grand Slam. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. So I, I watched um, the full match highlights of this um, this match a few days ago. And then this evening as a refresher, I watched the original. I, I watched the um, the full highlights in some German commentary. Uh, but then I watched uh, some 10 minute highlights um, um, this evening and it was the classic um, Mark Pecci, Barry Cowan duo. And, and Lisa, I would watch any match that the two of them are commentating. It happens yeah. possibly not at all anymore because they're no longer on Sky Sports together. I would go as far as to say I would watch the first point of a of a tie break between Federer and Djokovic in a Grand Slam final forever on repeat, as painful as that would be, on the basis that it was Mark Petchy and Barry Cowan commentating together. There's, they're, they, they're there's something magical about them. Duo, and they sum it up and they're succinct and it's it's accurate. And from with my coaching hat on, they also talk not just about the brilliance, you don't get the sense of it, but they talk about what's just happened and the point structure. And the brilliance of both players in the match we've chosen during during the match. I mean, Lopez comes out of the starting blocks um, with rocket fuel. And actually, interestingly, I think I'm right because I have refreshed my my memory a bit by watching it. He starts with a double fault and then hits an ace in the opening game. And that's quite an unusual um so that's an unusual way to go about that. Usually it goes ace, double fault. And then maybe just a regular serve. It's unusual to have the double fault and then still be going sort of for more and make an ace. So I just and is, to is that nerves, do you think, or is that just coincidence? Because I mean, Lopez, um, he gets better as his, and his results get better as his career goes on, largely because his backhand improves out of sight. Yes. Um, and I, he, I, yeah, he, he does get better. I mean, he still has, I think, a high record of the number of losses on tour as a player who's won many. He won over 500 matches, but he lost over 475. <laughs> I did my homework on that bit. Um, and if we're going on titles, he won seven titles by 2017 to Federer's 103. So there's yes, a small that, discrepancy on that. Yeah. Um, but the way he starts the match... If we're going into the match now, maybe I've jumped the gun here, Jack. No, we should we should actually I think we go should into get the, on match. the match. Why we've chosen what what do you make of the the game in which Lopez breaks Federer, the game in which or about which Mark Petchy says um that it might be the best return? Or was it Barry Cowan? One of the two it might be the best was, return game Cowan, of, of it, 2007. And it is yeah, so you, the, the backhand volley winner where it takes all his strength to bring it cross court, and then you've got um that forehand down the line where he careers around the back of the court as if he's peak Nadal to an absolute <laughs> enormous forehand and then finally the um the the on break point when it hits that volley right into the corner of the court I and it's 
it was it's, like a video game sort of point and, and series of points and he was never going to keep that up but it was absolutely remarkable well i i have to say i watched that point numerous times and laughed <laughs> i laughed at the footwork of lopez creates space at the very beginning by moving he's left-handed by the way i'm sure everyone knows this um he moves a long way out to open up the court to hit the shot down the line that creates the space for him to move forward but the the bit that you you know we talk about Lopez as a singles player, but don't forget he was a, he's an extraordinary doubles player. Moves forward instinctively, and it's such clever play. His physical speed is one thing. Then you've got the technical excellence to hold the racket out and his decision-making. And I'm watching this brilliant low volley off his shoelaces, and he's still closing the net. I think for players out there watching, for juniors watching, he doesn't stop. There's stillness and there's movement all in one. He is still moving forwards and it's just the most sublime point. And yes, it's, if you're going to break Federer, I think that's the way to do it. Um, I think Federer actually has break point in the next game with a short blackhand slice return, but Lopez actually holds that um, and Federer misses a forehand in the next, in the next Federer game. comes over his backhand more in this match than I remember. I'm pretty sure I watched this match live at the time. I was living in um, Washington, D.C. Um, but in 2007, he was slicing the backhand a lot. I mean, presumably that's got to do with the fact that um, Lopez was either at net or tempted to come to net and therefore he couldn't afford um, to slice too much. I think one of the points of the match, if we're talking about well, why this match was certainly on my hit list, is the variety of passes, the variety of Federer's backhands, you know, yes, the slice that creates the space, but then the passing shots where he comes, the Federer comes up the back of the ball to create the spin. They're called short angle passes, short angle passes. And any juniors with any single hand, if anyone's still playing with single handed backhands out there, would do well to look at the variety and also the footwork. I mean, we've talked endlessly about Federer's balletic footwork, but it's, it's the large steps to get him in position and then the pace of the racket head um, coming through. But he hits the back of the ball and you can't read it. I think the thing that struck me, I was watching you know, from a Lopez point of view, he, I think it's in the third and certainly the fourth set. It's almost unreadable. It's down the line, it's cross court and it's over and over again on the run. And he goes both ways, more so on the backhand than the forehand and many more um, short angles where the ball bounces inside the service box. Um, it, it helped that Lopez is neither getting the ball very high to Federer's backhand, nor is he, other than the odd forehand, hitting the ball very hard relative to other players in 2007, let alone compared with players yeah, today. The but, style of play mm. certainly aids Federer's ability to make those shots look yeah. easy. But that's how you can tell you are watching Federer somewhere near the top of his game because those backhand passes he's making, you'd think almost as many as he made against um, a less intelligent um, performance in Roddick in the following, uh, no, the, the first slam of 2007 when Federer hit a million passes against a player who had, had no idea what he was doing. Um, yeah. You knew even at the end of 2007, looking back now that he still had all those passing shots 
in his locker. There, there was one where um, Lopez sliced the ball right into the corner and Federer hits um, um, a pass that you knew in that period of time that he would make. I think about all those sliced approaches that um, Ivan uh, Lubacic played. In my, in my mind, they all took place in Miami in 2006, <laughs> but I'm sure there were others. But you would see Federer, particularly on the forehand side, no matter how deep or uh, or biting the slice, his forehand, his arm was so loose and live. It could, as long as it was three quarters of an inch above the playing surface, he was, he was hitting it at 100 Anywhere. miles an hour. Anyway. up and over the net it was he could still do that even in at the end of 2007 yeah and i mean you know the racket he's playing with uh let's talk about that the wilson k factor the 6190 i mean for those who don't know the racket head size that federer uses is, is small relative to players who increase their racket head size which obviously gives you um more power more control um, his head size is quite small with a 16, 19 string pattern. Um, again, natural gut strings mixed with Luxalon, which gives a bit more bite on the strings. And he, it, it, it's a wand. I mean, it looks like a wand. Um, yeah, I think, Jack, it's the fact that he had the ability to bend the ball, slice the ball, and go line or cross court um, off most balls. I mean, his run of, I think, winners or unforced errors, I think we haven't really talked about the stats on the match. I was surprised at the end of the match, um, pleasantly surprised that the unforced error rate was 12 unforced errors, Federer, 29 Lopez. And often it's players that make the least unforced errors who win, as opposed to the most winners, because what is a winner? Is it something that's an ace or something that's unreturnable? But equally, the winner rate was 44 to 34. Um, and his first serve percentage, we haven't even begun to talk about the match for me, the passing shots, the backhand pass. And then this absurd, you know, almost laughable run of points on serve one. I think it was 35 points held on serve. That's what I have too. That's nearly nine games according to my maths, where you don't drop a point. I mean, it doesn't Not speak in the much last to Lopez's ret return of serve. No, I think that's cool. I think <laughs> <laughs> No, I think the serving looked more and more relaxed. Mm. And um, even if, if Lopez got a, a, a racket on it, the third shot was mm. a, I mean, a moving forward. The slice, the outwide slice, slice serve on the on yeah. the two side was absolutely killing Lopez. And you talk about lefties giving righties a problem on the ad court. Um, but Federer bar peak Federer bar those matches against Rafa didn't have a problem returning from his backhand side um, in the ad court. And he all. he was um I mean Lopez just could not return those slices. I, I forget where it is in the match. There's a backhand return to Lopez who's moved forward and it's just flicked back at his shoestrings. Lopez picks it up and does an, a good job with it to find that Federer's hit another backhand lob over his backhand side down the line, um, which Lopez, I think, attempts a hot dog and laughs. And he's laughing because that's all really you can do or cry, mm. maybe. <laughs> and, and the Federer, the Federer backhand. You talked about 
the variety of the passes and the short angle of some pretty tricky passes. Um, and you know, if they weren't very good, Lopez, he's not the best from the back of the court, but from the from from the forecourt in 2007 is right up there. Um, and, and you compare it to the Federer backhand of 2017, the fate, you know, the, the Neo um, backhand. And and it's it is my view, and maybe this isn't an, is an obvious thing to say, but it is it is a better backhand for 2017 for the modern game. Um, and, with, and that's why it brings him success in 2017. Um, it's a very different backhand to 2006 and seven. In 2017, he's, he's hitting it harder. He can hit through you on the backhand. He can hit winners from the back of the court. He didn't um, need to in this match though. This is part, partly you know, matches. You, you do what you do to win and you do what you have to do. And he played for me, it was the obviously the the tactics, but it was the perfect approach to the match. You know, the first set was was definitely I think tougher than maybe he expected, um, and from then on, there's a sort of runaway feel with the match where Federer just plays sublime tennis for set after set, hmm. and there's not that much that Lopez can do, and I don't think there's that much that did that Lopez did wrong. Certainly in the in the fourth set, you know he hangs in there on many points and Federer comes up with a good often the backhand cross-court winner yeah um, I mean I, I think as, as 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 much as we wax lyrical about that 2017 backhand and as much pleasure as it gave me to see him sort of transform himself into his sort of his third stage as a as a as a power <laughs> player I like to think of it as Burdick but someone who can handle pressure and move better um <laughs> But, but actually, I think that 2007 era backhand has so much more flexibility and creativity and is um, a much more appropriate shot for that era, which is part of the reason why he had to change it. He, yeah. he started getting less success with it and then only more oh. success when he he altered um, the, the swing and the racket and everything. But you've got to um, go with, the... with modern now mm. power speed height of player height of ball technology you know we could we could do another whole podcast just on that but that wasn't necessary in 2007 nor was it really there so so we get to lopez one set up and then four all um did it ever watching it back um did it ever feel like lopez was gonna win the match. I mean, it was it was obvious that you know next when you when you're at four all in the second, it's obviously next set wins. Um, d- d- was there ever that sense of um, danger for Federer? I don't. I didn't feel it. Maybe I think knowing results is always a calming effect uh, when you're watching a match. If you if you're a Federer diehard, um, but I felt that he was just full throttle. You know, it was so fast. The speed of play, forget the, the 25 second or more in between points. It was two love Federer. It was three love Federer. The momentum just built and built and built. And I think, you know, I was I was surprised by the slip. I think Federer has, you know, normally perfectly balanced. He returns um, from an out wide at 30 all and he slips. And I was quite shocked, you know, to see Federer fall over is, is quite unusual. Um, perfectly fine it was just a skid um, and Lopez gets on the scoreboard at that point uh, to take a game but the serves were unreturnable 
and the match was just played at a speed that suited Federer. There was no hanging around, there was no waiting, there was no fear. It looked fearless to me watching it in a way that later matches, later years, there's more doubt, there's less, um, there's less security in the shot making. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh. Um, I think there's one point where Federer walks across the back for an overhead and doesn't even move to look for the overhead smash. Um, if you look carefully in the background, he just walks across the back of the court. It's quite entertaining, not even bothered about the point, not even making a run for it. That made me smile, actually. Uh, yeah, it's unusual. But he won 13 straight points on serve during the third set. And, and talking of the speed, the, the match is four sets ensure that the, the third set is over in about five minutes. But it, the whole thing is only two hours long. Yeah. You don't feel short change but it made me think of this murray tfo first round where were they antwerp or something and it's four hours long and i on a personal level like andy murray and francis tfo it's you know it's criminal to, to have differing views but you could not pay me to watch four hours of an indoors between Andy Murray and Francis TFO, or indeed anyone. The, the tennis matches have absolutely no right or need or reason to be that long. And for a, a four-hour four hour match to be two hours is kind of perfect. Yeah, I think that it's the quality of the match and less is more, actually, here. Less is more. Um, I don't think anyone who's watched that match, and maybe he will go on and watch that match again, even if it's a bit blurry, um, feel shortchanged um yeah i could not see the ball when i was listening to the the, the pechi cow and commentary i was there i was it was an it was yeah. an audio experience yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and how how quick obviously so much has changed between 2007 and that match and the 2021 and tfo murray um particularly you know the rackets and the balls and the physicality of the players um i think but when you've got how, how, yeah, I just want to ask, how, how quick, I know, I know you don't like this question because it's hard to tell, but it did look like a quick court, um, Ash, particularly now with the, with the roof, which sort of feels like it's drained all the speed out of that court. But it looked like a quick call in 07, even at night. It does look quick. Um, as you say, technology has moved on a pace. The power games moved on a pace. The physicality of the players has moved on to the point where, you know, the serve that was always you know, and is always the most dominant and important point because the, the players in charge of it from then on you're dependent on what your opponent gives you obvious but but worth remembering now you know if a serve is kicking over sinner's head and he's not small with a kick serve where he can't reach it with his racket it's almost almost immaterial how fast the court is because the bounce the speed is going to naturally um kick to places where people can't reach the ball so that's why matches can go on and on and on and it will boil down to yes a point or a double fault at a moment does that make it interesting um less so for me i'm curious about point structure and the choices and the armory involved in when a point builds because you've got the science you've got the art you've got the physicality you've got so many factors um, Obviously, I can admire and marvel at serves that make my shoulder feel tired just looking at them. <laughs> I, I think if you're if a set of tennis is going to be 
um, 70 minutes long, as you you really damn well better be Djokovic Nadal at the 2021 French Open. Like, that's the bar for justifying a set of tennis being that long. And that's a hell of a high bar because that was, you know, probably the, the set of, of the year. Um, I've watched a lot of tennis. We both love the sport. Um, and I can't speak for anyone else. If you love um, a really long best of five, more power to you. But um, I'm not going to watch it. So- and Murray's not going to watch it because <laughs> when he was commentating, I think I might have said this before, when he was commentating, I think it was on Nadal Del Potro at Wimbledon and maybe 17, 18 or something like that. Um, and, you know, a high quality match between two entertaining players. But he was like, as it went into the fourth or fifth hour, and sure, I'm sure he would, he would have been thinking I should be on that court and that would have made it harder for him to watch than me to watch. But he was also thinking, it's been going on a while, hasn't it? Yeah. I've got, he had dinner plans. Yeah. I wanted to talk um, about Lopez's backhand because in, in this era, I mean, he actually plays his backhand really well in this match. He hits, I mean, it's, it's, never, a, it's never a great biting slice, but it's a decent slice. It does what it, he wants it to do for him. And he actually hits some brilliant, topspin backhands in this match you know at his worst his backhand is a bit Greg bit Greg Krasetsky. that's not the case uh, his <laughs> topspin backhand that's not the case today um oh, but it's still not a great shot um and but his footwork to, to yes. his footwork to move around and play his strength shot with all great players you know Andy Roddick the same Andy Roddick doesn't lie awake at night worrying about his backhand being average at his level he just makes three quarters of the court with his forehand. Okay, so and- I, I need to jump in there because my big problem with Lopez throughout his whole career, his issue, put to one side the improvements in his backhand for a moment. The reason, in my view, he wasn't more successful is his forehand. It's actually not that good a shot. Um, I'm not sure at any stage in his career, the Lopez forehand, was it a top 10 shot? No. Was it a top 20 shot? I don't think so. Was it a top 50 shot? Maybe. Uh, and I think it speaks to, and, and, and given that that was his better side, it speaks to just how successful he was given his relatively limited tools. And it reminds me, I, I compare it, and it might sound odd, but I compare it to Shapovalov, yep. which might sound strange because Shapovalov has a tremendous backhand, which um, Lopez never had, even in later years. But the problem with, with Shapovalov isn't that he loses focus or isn't that he's not very good at rapping his problem is that his forehand isn't a great shot and, and the forehand is the dominant shot so for and both let's Gasquet, yeah. let's Gasquet here Gasquet's backhand yeah. is better than his forehand yeah now, now we, he... we did we had a whole thing with uh, with Davidenko last time talking about the, the difference and I know I'm once again I am it is my obsession I think with players the, who have but, better backhands yeah. and forehands but just that Lopez does have a better forehand than backhand but the reason he's not more successful in his career is even that forehand is just okay. Good. It's better than okay. It's not great. It's not damaging enough. When you move out of court and you play a shot where you're exposing the rest of your court, it has to be something that smacks the opponent backwards. And we know Federer is a, is a power player and was a power player, maybe is a power player. And his forehand does that. And sometimes Lopez's forehand does that, but not always. And, and, and just, I watched um, as well before um, we started talking tonight, just a few points from the Federer Lopez 
I think it was 2011 in um, Madrid. And um, the sure, I mean, Federer is a shell of a player. He's not even, it's not even a good version of post peak Federer. It's like, it's like one, one, 2011 Federer is one of the worst Federers. Um, but Lopez's backhand is such a good shot. And I wonder, I also think about how much Songa, different type of backhand and always more shape, steady shape. than um, than Lopez's backhand. But both those guys improved their weaker sides out of sight, particularly Lopez, because it was really a, a terrible shot, I'm afraid, the top 10 backhand of Lopez. And I just really admire how much he improved that shot, because frankly, it wasn't even a rally shot in the mid 2000s and in that 2011 you know Federer is dreadful but Lopez was magnificent and I, I would love to know what technical mental I think physical always, changes yeah I think he's always had a nice one-handed backhand I think um his key body position he's changes he's screaming it in 2011 he he's yeah, hitting it his... in a way that he believes that he's not going to embarrass himself Whereas I feel sideways. like I mean, I'm 10 years to on, he's worried he might embarrass himself. I'm trying to remember that, and I haven't watched the 2011. But I think if I were to roll through the years of the Lopez um, game, I might be tempted to think without looking again, I might have to go and look now, is he is slightly more sideways. He holds his position better in 2011 than he does in 2007, meaning his arm is more dominant, his, his stance is stronger. Does that make a difference? Yeah. Yeah, it makes a big difference. And obviously technology has moved on to help him. Yeah, I mean, I've been very mean about his topspin backhand, um, but credit where credit's due. It's um, it's not it like another clearly, player. It's still clearly him. And that makes it all the more impressive. And also, let's just talk about his backhand size for a minute, because you know he's a wonderful doubles player and his ability to move forward on that slice, lefty slice, is definitely a weapon. How good a slice is so so from from in my mind, it's very hard to see a better slice than Steffi Graf's. Yep. Um, so particularly, and she benefited particularly from just the sheer um, juxtaposition between the forehand and the backhand, um, because you know, well, after nineteen ninety, she never hit the tops and backhand again. Um, but um, how good is? Lopez's slice because for me it's a very nice shot but it's not a proper biting drive you crazy slice it's like like Nadal's I, slice it's good and it gets it back to neutral but he's not winning points with it which he kind of needs to in a way that Nadal doesn't I think Lopez's slices is, is better than that um, he sets up points with it enough if the percentage if you look at the stats yes it's going to fall short sometimes, but the depth he gets on it, don't forget, it's not just the angle, it's obviously being a lefty, the ball will spin and move into a different part of the right-handed player's body, which makes it more awkward. You have to work a little bit harder on the slice. But someone like Federer, who likes the low ball and likes the slice, you know, it's less of a problem for him than it will be for other players. And Steffi Graf, I remember watching her at Wimbledon um, and she hit topspin backhands when she was winning. This was the tail end of her career. She would hit the most beautiful topspin backhand. And the minute she missed one, and I watched a couple of matches, it you wouldn't see another one for the set. You'd see only the slice. Mm -hmm. So uh, the resort, um, Met players, you know, however wonderful. And, you know, Steffi Graf, number one player in the world. 
you will still resort to your comfort zone when you feel under pressure. And Lopez's slice is his comfort zone. Mm. And and just quickly on Federer's slice, because you know it is it is an excellent slice, and there he, he's got the aggressive slice, he's got the defensive slice. But my favorite thing about his slice is he will hit it, and because he wants to hit a forehand next. And so if you if you can get it right back to his backhand, he'll hit another backhand. Maybe a slice, maybe not. But as soon as you, if soon as you, as his opponent, slice his slice back to him, he's hitting a forehand. Yep. He is not engaging. There's that one very long point with um, yeah. Mikhail Usually in Australia in 2007, where they hit 40 slices in a row and the crowd laughed. I hate when the crowd laughs after like more than five successive slices. It's like almost bad as the clapping on question time. But other than that, <laughs> like one off, right? He is. If you slice his to his slice, he's hitting a forehand, and he's on top of the point now. And that's what I love about the shot. It it, it is it, it's serving a purpose. Yes, it's point construction using the slice to get what you want to do. Um, and with again, you know, a coaching hat on. Um, very often, when I've been coaching somebody, I'll ask them, you know, what was the shot that came to them to cause the error or to allow the winner, and at basic level people don't know they'll say a good one but actually by trying to work backwards to get the shot that you want because you want to play your best shot is where Federer excels and especially in the Lopez match when you asked earlier was there a chance from losing no not in my book and do you have any other thoughts anything else that came to mind for me from a technical or other perspective um, the, the sheer variety of the points, um, we've talked about the speed of the points, but the variety of topspin, backhands, sliced backhands, topspin, forehands down the line as passes, whipped forehands cross court, but, but both players sensing when to move forwards. You, this is something maybe because the power game is so great now that it's almost impossible and the reach and the, and the, the depth of reach from players who are now taller and taller um, to reach balls that would have been possibly in 2007 just about reachable allowed players to move in different ways so for me watching the match um, you know the Lopez volley off his shoestrings and still moving forwards extraordinary extraordinary mix-up of points but Federer looked so clear on on his um choice of how he was going to play the match his tactics were just spot on throughout from from certainly the middle to the end of the second set and and break down for me if you would his tactics i mean is is it any more complicated than keep hitting to the lopez backhand opening up the court hits the backhand and when he was on full stretch Several times he went lob over the backhand side of Lopez to make it more difficult. Mm. And, and Lopez just doesn't have the strength. Lopez doesn't, doesn't have, have the strength. strength. There's one. There was one um, backhand overhead that Federer, and yes, Federer is more talented, so it's it's not a fair comparison. But Lopez has a lot of talent at net. He just that that forearm just wasn't quite strong enough to hit an overhead that wasn't the world's most difficult yeah. overhead i think the touch is different and the weight of lobbed and the weight of when to angle things and there's a couple of 
phenomenal overheads that Lopez hits to Federer and Federer's backpedaling over his backhand side and the power that he generates off the smash of the overhead is different level. Mm. Um, it's a put away and it's a difficult shot that he makes look easy. It's funny because Federer never really mastered the um, the Pete Sampras um, slam, dunk. Uh, slam dunk because and the slam dunk you're, you're you're running towards the ball and it is it's a tr it's a tricky shot because you're running towards a ball that's also coming towards you so you've got half the time, whereas he would hit what was seemingly much more difficult overheads virtually over his own baseline move his body weight going yep. the wrong way and, but in some ways is that power. an easier shot because you're not careering towards the ball. I think, well, again, that boils down to the to personal mm. preference. Sampras made and, it just look absurdly easy. And just, uh, yeah, and, and again, for me, though, it's, the, it's the, the snap he gets on it, as he does on his serve. When he's serving, you know, with the, the fluidity of his service shape and style, and we could wax lyrical about the loading and the unloading through the serve, a technical setup, um, it's, it's, it's the, the power he generates with ease when it's all smooth and it's all rhythmic and there's little pressure on it and he mixes up his serve. I think that's the other thing you asked about the match, the mix up. It wasn't always this, this, it wasn't as set and formulaic as big servers are nowadays. I think he just dazzles us with ground strokes and point construction. I think it's a masterpiece in point construction for any juniors wanting to watch. Are you ready to talk about the outfit? Yes. Can we have any music? So Federer, <laughs> Federer wore um, all black attire for those of you who haven't watched the match. And that caused the American press to nickname him Darth Federer. I think that was, and they played the Imperial March from Star Wars when he made his appearance, which uh, well, I found entertaining. Obviously he'd won his fifth Wimbledon title beforehand when he was, you know, wearing his all whites um and i think having head to toe black with i think the white nike or silver swishes and i particularly enjoyed the tuxedo stripes on the shorts um bit of glamour um you know he's he's worn black attire at the us open in 2014 again with gray trim and pink pink accents on his nike jordans um and now, obviously, 2019 US Open collection, it's Uniglow, it's not Nike. There's a, there's a huge difference, in my opinion. Um, it's got black and white and cuffs that are red. But for me, the, the pure black look is, is, is fairly fabulous. How about you, Jack? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, he looks, we've, we, and again, we've talked about this before, but you compare him to that uh, mostly blue top in 2004, and how is it that in 2004, he looks like he weighs, you know, two, three stone in muscle and is maybe two, three inches taller than he does in 07. Now, of course, you know, black is slimming. We know. Um, but it it doesn't explain how much smaller he looks um, cut, three years cut later. Of cut of the cloth, Jack. Um, looks lighter. I, I, it, he, he does look lighter. I mean, he looks... And it's funny you mentioned 2014 because obviously he does wear black at night again in 2014 mm -hmm. um, and um, nearly loses to Monfils in the quarters, then does lose to Chilich in the semis, which was a great shame because it would have been um, Nishikori in the final, bless his soul. Um, it's not my, the black isn't my favourite. We're, we're already in that era where he's wearing polos. 
um, which... with a button, not a zip this time. Yes, the zip was that 2005 match. It's funny how much in that 2005, he looks a bit like um, Mufasa, doesn't he? <laughs> the sprawling hair. Uh, he he almost looks vaguely um, like a sexual animal in the way that Federer really is. Never, he's not marketed as as a sex figure, um, really ever. He's selling. Uh, he's well, not maybe not high end champagne, mid range champagne, um, and he's working for uh, global banks, and he's probably working with brands I've also um, never heard of. Uh, but he's never been um, really very someone who's sold on that, you know, all the girls want to sleep with him sort of thing. I think he's always dressed with massive attention to detail and wears his outfits beautifully. I but mean, is attention so... to detail hot? Yeah, sometimes. I think the Indian Wells, I'm having a quick look, I have to tell you, there was a blue colour block polo that he wore with his white short and royal wrist. We'll have to check this out and the headband. And that's very hot and very cool. And I think he wears pink as well as anybody. I think he's made pink part of his color. Um, Do a search for that, um, the Indian Wells um, 2007 versus- um, Okay, I'll have a quick look, see if um, I can find that. What's his face? Can, yes. I wasn't a big fan, I have to say, of the, of the the cut the palette the greens he wore in 2016 he wore some green palette colors that were a little insipid for my, my <laughs> life. um i preferred the block colors I, I can't find it jack so i'll have to have to let you know about that another time but no the, the for me wearing you know black at night white in the daytime with contrast you know, he was i think we've said this the first player to bring in different colors for daytime and nighttime because he knows that that matters. I can't remember the year you're going to remind me of the jacket at, at Wimbledon. Well, there was there were several several ill-judged attempts. Several I think the first the cream sure jacket was 2006. 2006. Yeah, not sure about that. And then you had the trousers in the 07, and the worst was 09 when he looked a bit like a like he was the director of a gay cruise ship. Luckily, it didn't stay on for very long before the warm-up. <laughs> no, and, and don't let's let's not get started on, on the 2009 not, final, which is the least fun. Let's move on, Jack. He's ever had winning. <laughs> um, so that match, have you have you watched it through from beginning to end recently? Yes, so I watched it. I'm pretty sure I watched it first time around, and I definitely watched it last week. And would you watch it again? I'd give it some time, um, but I've I've definitely watched the short highlights numerous times over, since you know August September two thousand and seven because it is so much fun, and yet it's, it, this is our third match we've discussed, and each time we 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 discuss one where the other guy plays well, but Federer still wins comfortably. Yeah, because those are the most fun. Here? Yeah, well, I think, you know... We don't come here for jeopardy. The giveaway is in you know, that Federer match, I think. Uh, mm. It's not that Lopez match. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you so much for um, for doing this again with me. It's a pleasure, Jack. Absolute pleasure. I'm and, great uh, watching some old matches, I think. Yes. Uh, if we're going to do that, I better 
start watching a few more now. Um, great. Well, this has been um, that Federer match. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at that Federer pod. Uh, we are available on uh, iTunes and Spotify and wherever you get your uh, your podcast. Um, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.